You can open up to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, and we're going to go through a very small section of text here today, but I think it's a very powerful section. Uh, most of the commentaries, it gets glossed over very quickly, and I think it is no less important than the rest of what we've been covering in Ephesians. So we'll be in Ephesians three eleven. When I was playing basketball in college, uh, my school was part of the Big East Conference. Uh, we played various schools on the East Coast, including Georgetown, which was in Washington, D.C. And being a young kid from Portland, Oregon, every single city we flew into, I was blown away. I was like, wow, you know, so much history, the size, I was in awe, especially of Washington, D.C. When we landed, our coach let us know that he had, uh, he had a connection at the White House that was going to allow us to go in and take a tour of the White House. And so we would be getting a a tour of the West Wing and be able to go into spots and places that no one else could. And I was able to stand behind the White House seal on the podium. The press room is extremely small. I mean, it's like the size of my bathroom. Like, it's, it's extremely small, very odd. I thought it was much bigger. I was able to sit in the cabinet conference room table. Again, very small room. Uh, when you see people on, on TV or in press releases where they're wedged in the corners, it's because it's tiny. And we even got to watch as then-President Clinton left with Boris Yeltsin on Marine One from the back lawn, which was pretty cool. Uh, At one point, we walked past the Oval Office, and I said, can I go in? They said, yeah, go ahead, step in. So I kind of just stepped in, and I stood in the Oval Office, where the most powerful person on the planet does his daily business. Now, I'm not trying to talk about politics here. You guys know me. I'm very independent. I don't uh, love the Republicans. I don't love the Democrats. I think all of them need Jesus, um, just like all of us. But the first thing that stuck out to me was, as I said, how small everything was, and yet how large I pictured it in my mind. That might be because I'm a giant, right? But the second thing that blew me away was the whole time uh, I was walking around with this freedom and this access that I thought, man, this is crazy. I'm getting to walk around and there's all these security guards. And where it really hit me was when I stepped out on the back lawn and I looked at my chest and I had multiple laser sights trained on me. And I thought, you're not supposed to be here, right? But yet I had access, I had a boldness in access because we'd been granted this privilege to step into this powerful building, the most powerful building on the planet, and walk in the place as the most powerful person, arguably, on the planet. And it's this kind of confident access and boldness that Paul desires for the church to understand. For every church he planted, including the church at Ephesus, he wanted them to understand the boldness they had. You see, to be bold is to be strong in the knowledge that you have, rightly confident in who you are, willing to take risks based upon that boldness. And as we'll see in our short text today, Paul reminds the church that they are to be bold. And this mission fellowship is my desire for us today. My desire for you here today, this morning, is that I want to remind you who you are in Christ. And I want you to understand that we are to be the bold church bold church. Let's read our text today for context purposes. As I love to tell you guys, you never should read out of context. You want to read in context. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 3 and read down into our text for today. Ephesians 3 verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, Now the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. 
When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And now our text for this morning. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul had been given the gospel to preach to the Gentiles to bring to light the radical gospel of reconciliation. The Jews and Gentiles were now formed into one new body, not two separate plans, not two separate groups of people, but one new body, one plan. And he was also to build up the church so that, as he says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. In the end, this is not just about getting souls saved. It is not just about growing the church. In the end, this is about bringing glory to the one and only creator God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God that came incarnate in Christ, the God that now dwells amongst us by his Holy Spirit. In the end, it is about restoring his rightful place as king of the universe, Lord of all. And Paul is using his individual calling to raise up the collective church. So that the angelic beings, both those who are rebellious towards God and those who are on the side of God, will realize that his kingdom is indeed victorious. And he's calling all people everywhere to repent and be part of his kingdom. To repent from the kingdom of darkness and step into the kingdom of light. And this, he says, was according to the eternal purpose that he, God, realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first thing that Paul calls us to here in boldness is first the boldness in our position in the anointed king. Boldness in our position in the anointed king. Go ahead and write that down if you're taking down notes. Okay, well this gospel that Paul had been discussing and giving to us is a vivid, picturesque understanding of God's reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles into one new nation. And this could only be done through that plan of the Father realized in Christ Jesus. This word realized is a very interesting word. It's kind of different than the idea of created. He didn't create something new. He realized this plan in Christ Jesus. It's like when we say that someone realized their dream of graduating or realized their dream of making the championship game. Um, It's basically taking something that was there and forming it into something new. And so the plan of God and Jesus and his kingdom was not plan B. It's always been the plan. 
And throughout the Bible, this was made clear. This plan has always been Jesus enthroned as king. Next week, we'll be gathering to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the past, I've talked to you guys about how some of those weird traditions we have, like Easter eggs and bunnies and all that stuff, it comes from a lot of ancient Near East traditions that have nothing to do with Jesus. But how many of you know where we get the name Easter? Raise your hand. Okay. Now, some of you think I'm going one way. Some of you might be wrong. Okay. A lot of people believe, and, and I think there's some validity to the idea that it could be from connection to the goddess Astarte. And I've taught you guys that before. But the name Easter from a Christocentric position actually has a ton of validity. Because what we are going to understand here in a second is that the word Easter actually has to do with resurrection. So whether you say Resurrection Sunday, whether you say Happy Easter, either way, you're right on. And it all has to do with this thing called the Passover. Okay, Why don't you turn with me to Exodus 12. Exodus 12, and we're going to see what's going on. In Exodus 12, you guys remember the story. The Israelites are hanging out. They've gone through all these plagues that the Lord has brought them through um, against the Egyptians, and he's about to free them, to take them to the promised land. And so we, are, uh, we come to this place where they're about to celebrate the Passover meal, which will allow them to stay away from being part of the curse that's coming through the last plague, the death of the firstborn. Now, this was an important plague because every single plague in the Exodus went against part of the pantheon of gods in Egypt. And the last plague was against the firstborn of the son of Pharaoh. And this was important because Pharaoh himself was viewed as a god. He was viewed as the uh, vicar on earth, if you will, of the gods. He was the um, incarnate god that was there in front of them. And so Yahweh is going to come against the young king, the young, uh, the young Pharaoh-to-be. And in so doing, he will destroy part of the pantheon of gods. And so in this Passover, the Israelites are about to, to take on loyalty to Yahweh and state very clearly that they are not part of the Egyptian system of worship. So verse 1 there in chapter 12, it says, The Lord said to Moses, and remember L-O-R-D capitalized, who is that? Yahweh. That's always Yahweh. It's yod heh vov in the, in the uh, Hebrew, and they uh, transliterate it into Lord in the English. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. In other words, they're changing their entire calendar around this point. That's how, prior, how much priority they're giving it. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its leg, legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The wrath of God's destructive force against the idolatry of Egypt would pass over the people of Israel because of their loyalty to Yahweh. Right? This wasn't about praying a prayer. This wasn't about attending a certain church. This was about loyalty to a God, loyalty to Yahweh. And it was their understanding of his authority as their king that provided resources for the sacrifice that prevented their death. And this was a picture of the Messiah that would come. So when we look forward to the New Testament, and we see in 1 Corinthians that Jesus is spoken of as our Passover lamb, we have to understand the connection. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, what is that word there? Our Passover. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. This is why in Revelation 5, when we cry out to God and give him worship, we will say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now you're asking me, where are we going with this? Is this connected to Ephesians in any form or fashion? It is, just keep going with me. Let me show you something cool with this. In the past, like I said, you've probably heard uh, various things. I've even stated them that things like Easter eggs and bunnies, those come more from fertility uh, cults than they do from Christianity, and that is true. But the name Easter itself actually, most likely in the Christian realm, has to do with something else. That word Passover there uh, in the Hebrew is Pesach, uh, and it's, in Greek, it's Pascha, okay? That's what those weird characters up there say is Pascha, all right? Now, this uh, in today's English translation has been basically translated into Passover. That's our English word for Pascha or Pesach, okay? And so we say Passover in the newest translations. But remember when they were first translating the Bible, they didn't have that kind of awesome translation that we do with Logos and other Bible software. And so the very first translation into the Germanic languages was by a guy named Martin Luther. How many of you are familiar with him? Yeah, okay. Now, Martin Luther translated this, and he translated it when he said the lamb, he called him the resurrection lamb. This comes from the, the German word auferstehen, which means resurrection, and the shortened derivative of that is ostern or oster. So when Luther wrote down the second half of 1 Corinthians 5, 7, this is how he said it. Den wir haben auch ein Osterlamm, das ist Christus für uns geführt. Okay? Now, you guys probably don't recognize any of that German. Unless you know German, that's okay. Look at Oster Lamb. Okay? When that was translated by William Tyndale three years later into English, here's how he translated it. For Christ, our Easter Lamb is offered up for us. The word Easter is very much a derivative of the Germanic word for resurrection. That's where we get it. And so that's why for centuries the church has said, Happy Easter. It's not that the Catholic Church is a bunch of wackos who, you know, wanted to connect with Astarte. It's that they wanted to celebrate the resurrection. Now, true, if you're celebrating Easter with a bunch of eggs, right, you got to recognize that 
that's probably not from Christianity, and you should just have fun with the eggs as eggs, right? Don't try and connect them to Jesus. So Easter is very much connected to Passover. In other words, Martin Luther looked at the Passover of Exodus and he said, okay, there's a passing over of the people's sin just like there's a passing over of their sin because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we look at that old school English uh, where they have an E on the end of almost everything, Easter lamb, and we recognize that that is the same as Passover lamb. So when you guys come Sunday and you want to celebrate God's resurrection in Christ, you're also celebrating the Passover. Does that make sense? Okay. You're celebrating the very same thing that was prophesied back in Exodus. Now, what does this have to do with anything in Ephesians? Well, here's my point. The plan of God has always been Christ. There's never been, oh, oops, maybe we should do Jesus now. It was never a second plan. He was always the main plan. And from him would come a people, as we talked about last week, that is known as the church, the covenant community of Christ. And that is the plan, and it always has been. And this plan, back in Ephesians, if you'll turn there with me, it has finally become recognized, realized, the word is that he uses there, realized in Christ. And that work of Christ that has been realized is the forgiveness of sins. Amen? But what the Passover also initiated was the redemption and forging of that new people that God brought out of the kingdom of darkness in which they resided. With Christ's death and resurrection, he was also exalted to the position of Messiah and King of God's new humanity. One of the coolest things that I've heard over and over and over again since we've been through Isaiah and on into Ephesians is how many of you are blown away by the fact that you never really thought of Jesus as king. You were really quick to take him on as savior because that's how we get into heaven, right? But the idea of him being king and lord of my life, his law and his rule being what I live my life by, that was foreign because it is so foreign in American Christianity. We believe that we are autonomous, that we don't need to answer to anyone, and that is true grace, but that is a false gospel. The reality is, is that in that same moment that he was nailed to that cross to die as the sacrifice for our sins, he was also being lifted up to be enthroned as king, to stand over our lives in authority, all by grace and goodness, but still as Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is why we can have such confidence in our position with him. If the plan of the creator God was to bring forward a king that would reign in victory over sin, death, and spiritual oppression, then we can be assured that if he is truly our Lord, if he is truly our king, if we have given our lives to him and said, I am not perfect, but I at every turn will do my best to submit to you, and we're part of his people, then we can have boldness and confidence in our position in him. So many of us in this room struggle with our confidence in Christ. Am I really saved? What if I have wrong theology? Well, just keep coming. I'll correct it. Right? <laughs> Guys, a, a boldness and a confidence in Jesus is not arrogance. Arrogance is an exaggerated sense of our own importance. The way you can have arrogance in your Christian walk is when what we believe God's plan is centered upon is saving me. That's arrogance. If all of our theology is wrapped around God saving me and what his plan is for my life and how he brings riches to my life, that is arrogance. 
Because that's an over-realized importance of myself. But if we recognize that the whole point of God's plan was the enthronement of Christ, and we can honestly say in our own lives that that is the plan of our lives, the enthronement of Christ, then we can be boldly confident in our place in him. We have nothing to worry about. If that is not the plan of our life, if our life is all about me and how I get mine and what is my next wonderful, amazing event of my life, then we might have to worry because our plan of our life is not his enthronement. Do you have this courage this morning? As I talk about this, do you have conviction that, oh, maybe, yeah, maybe I'm in more of that other side that it's all about my salvation and not about his enthronement? If it is, it's very easy to repent. Simply turn to him and say, Lord, I repent from this idea that I am the center of your plan. And I instead place you at the center. If you are a person that you hear this this morning and you say, no, that's totally my life. At every turn, I try. And when I fall, I reorient and I focus and I put Jesus enthroned as king of my life. If you're part of God's covenant community, working together, trying to seek his enthronement, then this morning, I would say to you, you can be boldly confident in your position in Christ. You have nothing to fear. At no moment in the future should you ever turn and say, am I saved? Does Jesus love me? Am I going to get into heaven? You don't ever have to worry about that again. Because being part of God's covenant people with him as king, it secures your place as his, his citizen. And this is not the only boldness that Paul gives us. We have boldness in our position in him, but secondly, we have boldness in access to the throne of the king. Boldness in access to the throne of the king. Paul said this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's not just a proper name. That is saying the Messiah, Yeshua, and he is our highest authority, our king. And then he says in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the fear and trepidation that the high priest would need to have when entering the Holy of Holies. If he hadn't gone through the proper sacrifice, the proper cleansing, he might fall dead when he goes in there. But then, because of the atoning work of Christ, we talked about how the curtain was torn in two, the middle wall of separation was broken down, and anyone who desired to give their allegiance to Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, was welcomed into the presence of of God in the temple. That's an amazing thing when you think about it. Just as I was able to step into the Oval Office, whereas most days I probably would have gotten shot or at least tackled before I got in there, the same thing is true of God's throne room. He wants you to come to him. The door has been opened. The way has been made clear. Imagine for a second what that means for the moments where we think, oh, I don't really want to spend time with the Lord today. Can you imagine if I'd gotten to Washington, D.C.? And again, I'm not talking politics here. I'm talking getting to go in the Oval Office. Imagine if I'd gotten up to the door and gone, I just, I got better things to do, guys. I mean, there's this Netflix special I've really been wanting to watch. Or, you know, I could really use a nap. Or whatever 
the thing would be. Can you imagine doing that? No. I was like, of course I want to step in here and see what this is like. Oh my goodness. Well, the same thing is true of our access to the king. The very throne room of heaven has been opened to you and I because of the work of Jesus Christ. And every moment we spend in devotion, every moment we spend in worship, every moment we spend in corporate singing together, every moment we spend in communion, in our own private devotional, singing in our cars, every one of those moments is access to the king of the universe. If we reframe it in that context, does that sound a little bit better? A little bit more important than just, I gotta get up and read my Bible this morning. It's access to the throne room of grace. The author of Hebrews gives us a wonderful understanding of this. This is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think through how I often have thought about the throne room of grace, that I have to have it all perfect and ready to go, and I have to look my best and act my best to go there. And that's not why Jesus made a way for us to get into the throne room. You see, what Christ wants from us is in those moments where we're tempted to take our temptation to him in those moments where we're angry to take our anger to him, in those moments where we're full of praise and thanksgiving to take that to him. He wants us to constantly be speaking to him and walking with him and relating to him, not just when we have it down and when things are going well, but especially when we're suffering and things are hard. Get in a habit, church, of simply knowing he is with you at all times, and when you need to express something, express it. You have access and can enter boldly with confidence to the king. And it's not just as king and subject. It's not just as master and bondservant. I think we need to remember those relationships too. But through the Holy Spirit, we also know Jesus as a friend. Turn with me to John 15, and you'll see what I mean. John 15. In John 15, 8, Jesus says this. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What's the fruit? That would be our immediate question. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. American Christians are good at that, me and Jesus, right? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We as American Christians would say, that's legalism, Jesus. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that, how's that finish? Let's say it one more time even louder. How do we give glory to the Father? By doing what he commanded his Son. What did Jesus command us of? What does he command? That we love one another. What is this love that he asks of us? That we lay down our lives. Our egos, our opinions, our stances on supposed principle of secondary doctrine. We lay that down for the sake of one another. And ultimately we lay it down for the sake of his glory because by our love one for another, the world will know that we are his disciples. And if we do this, we are acting as citizens under the king whose law is love and who saved us into his kingdom by his grace. And if we humble ourselves amongst each other and serve one another in love, then Jesus calls us friends. Question for you. If we don't love one another, are we following his commands? No. And if we don't follow his commands, then what are we called? Is there a pin dropping in here? What is it called when you're not Jesus' friend? His enemy. enemy. To not love one another and surrender your life for one another makes you his enemy. Guys, it's a basic logic equation. He lays it out for us so well. So the confidence that we can have if we repent from our selfishness and from our very self-centric gospel And we lay that down for the sake of one another so that the collective church can evangelize by the love we have for one another to the glory of God. If we do this, then we know that we are his friends. And we can have confidence by entering into the lives of one another that we can actually also enter into the throne room of grace as his friend. Do you see why the church is so important? It not only gives us confidence that we're loved by one another, it gives us confidence that we're Jesus' friends. And so we have no problem entering into the throne room of grace at that point. We have boldness and confidence in our access through our faith in him. Now guys, this faith is very important because boldness must not be framed in the context of, of faith that I usually hear in the church, which is my superpower of belief in Jesus. You guys ever realize that? When we talk about faith, that's often what we think about. It's my superpower. I believe in what I don't see, and it's almost like a superpower. But remember that when we put faith in something, the emphasis of the faith is not dependent upon the holder of the faith. The emphasis is on the object to which the faith is assigned, and that faith is wholly dependent on whether or not that object is faithful. If I put my faith in my truck to get me somewhere and it dies on the way, I don't have faith in it anymore. It was completely dependent upon the object of faith. So when the Bible says the righteous shall live by faith, it is not saying that faith is the superpower that we have that makes us worthy of God's grace. But instead, we live our lives based upon the faithfulness of the one we put faith in, Christ Jesus. And so the reason we have such amazing access to the king is not because we are good, not because we are pure, but because the king is good. 
The king is gracious. The king is merciful and just. And so if we are in unrepentant sin and boldly try and walk in his presence, because he's good and just and righteous, we will be met with wrath. If we don't pledge our allegiance to his reign and we try and turn him into a genie that's going to give us whatever we want, if we mischaracterize him by saying God said this or God did this when he absolutely didn't, and we try and enter his presence, we will be met with wrath. It is only by trusting in his faithfulness and then submitting our lives to his reign and fully embracing the unity of his people as the citizenry of his covenant kingdom that we can walk in boldness and confidence that we are indeed his friends. Let us turn to Hebrews 10.19, and I'm going to read a pretty sizable section of scripture here, which I think perfectly captures these themes and ideas. Turn there with me, Hebrews 10.19. Hebrews 10, 19, therefore, brothers, and the word is Adelphoi in the Greek, it has connotations of being both brothers and sisters. So therefore, both brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries or enemies. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Guys, that is not just talking about whether or not you accept Jesus as Savior or not. That's talking about the whole shebang that we have been teaching for the last two years. Jesus is king. Jesus is head of the church. The necessity of being part of the covenant people of God, all of that is included in there. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed." 
but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Church, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. It allows us into the citizenry of the faithful. It transforms us into a people to follow the reign of Christ. In so doing, we recognize the massive importance of being part of his people in covenant community with one another. But then we are also sent out, out of that base, so to speak, commissioned to endure whatever difficulty and suffering is necessary to call the world to repentance and reconciliation with God. And whenever I'm talking to a Western group, and I'm not in Burkina or Haiti, I have to always say this with tongue-in-cheek about suffering. Guys, what do we have to suffer? (laughs) Anytime I get myself down and discontented, I think of that tiny little schoolhouse I teach in in Burkina with 200 pastors in 110 degree heat, and I think, what do we have to suffer? But Paul calls us to suffering. And this is the last piece of boldness that he calls us to. He calls us to boldness in suffering for the mission of the king. Boldness in suffering for the mission of the king. Right here in Hebrews, he says uh, all sorts of things about the first Christians that they endured. They struggled with sufferings. And in these cases, the government was taking their homes from them. They were um, getting their property plundered. They were being called out and given huge reproach and affliction. In our society, we don't really have that. So we have to ask the question, what does suffering mean for us? Well, in one sense, you could say, uh, maybe we won't have our property plundered, but how many of us are willing to lay down everything we have? Well, that's not God's desire for me, really. Go back to Ephesians with me and show, uh, let me show you what Paul's talking about there. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3 in Ephesians. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Who's the you he's talking to there? The church church where? At Ephesus and the surrounding churches as well. And he says, this suffering is for you, which is your glory. Remember that Paul was writing this letter from prison, most likely in Rome, possibly in Caesarea Maritima. And Paul wasn't alone in this kind of suffering. We just saw that in Hebrews The entire church was suffering. The false gospel that has crept into the church, known as the prosperity gospel, has created this lie that if your life as a Christian has suffering or struggles, then you aren't doing it right. I actually heard a pastor on this YouTube video the other day who I unfortunately know of him. I don't know him or else I would contact him and have a few words with him. He literally said... If you have struggle or suffering in your Christian walk, then you aren't doing it right. And then he followed it up with a misquotation of Jesus' words. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. The whole point of this false gospel is comfort and my kingdom. It's not Jesus's. And so this false gospel constantly misquotes scripture, takes Jeremiah 29.11 and says it's about me, takes all sorts of promises for the people of Israel and says it's about me. And meanwhile, we go to texts like this where Paul talks about suffering and we go, I'm so glad that Paul did that so I don't have to. I'm so glad that Jesus suffered so I don't have to. Then why did Jesus say, be like me? 
And Paul went, okay, I'll do that. And then Paul said, be like me. And somehow in the apostolic pass down, we went, well, somewhere that stopped, I don't have to suffer. My life should be the American dream. So why then does Paul say in Romans 8, 17 through 19, he calls us children and he says, we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided. In other words, this is a qualification. If we don't have this, then we are not his children or his heirs. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And we misquote this constantly. We take the, for I consider that the suffering, and my backache and my boss that's hard to work with, and oh man, these sufferings, they're going to work a far more exceeding weight of glory. We misquote it all the time. The context of this is we will suffer anything for the advancement of whose kingdom? Jesus's, not our own. You see, Paul's entire life, when he met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, was, my life is dead, his is risen, I follow him. And whatever I will give up, I will give up for his advancement. And again, we go, well, that's Paul, not me. Yes, Paul had a very specific role, praise God. But what I want each of you to apply this morning, and what I want to apply this morning, is what does that mean for my life? When I think about suffering in my life, what does that mean? What am I laying down for Jesus? You see, some struggles are because of the brokenness of this fallen world. Physical health issues, mental health issues. Some struggles are just bad decisions that result in our destruction in the here and now. But guys, when our life is pretty much hunky-dory and we're just cruising along, working our way up the ladder, enjoying the game watching tons of TV, no real complaints, we have to ask the question, have we played into the kingdom of this world? Have we bought into the system of the adversary of God? Is that why we're so comfortable? Because what the Bible tells us clearly is that if we are on the same mission of Christ and that of Paul, to bring justice where there is injustice, to confront the system of the enemy with the system of Christ, to teach our children contrary to the laws of this world, to give our allegiance to Christ over and above any other group or party, and above even our own feelings and desires, the Bible promises us we will be met with resistance. Just go with IJM to any one of the places that they try and end sex trafficking. Do you think they're met with resistance? Just go with me to any of the situations where I have to confront wrong theology. Do you think I'm met with resistance? Just sit in my office all week long and you'll see that I am. Whenever there's a confronting of the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of self, there is a lash back. There's a lash out. And we as Christians are called to suffer in those minuscule ways, because economically we don't really suffer. We're called to suffer in those minuscule ways because in so doing we're recognizing that we are confronting the kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of light. And when we fully engage in the mission of Christ to transform our lives, it will be difficult. Just simply walking in transparency and submission to one another is difficult. 
Surrendering, surrendering ourselves to the church body around us will be difficult. It will be hard. Maybe that's the difficulty that the Lord's calling you to. Somebody in their membership conversation this last week said something so profound. I wrote it down. I was like, I'm going to use this quote. And they said, okay, that's fine. They said, I wrestled with handing myself over to the church body through membership for a long time because it seemed really hard. I had to ask myself, is it hard because it's bad or is it hard because it's good? And then they realized it's hard because it's good. I don't want to give up my life to anyone. And that, guys, is the difficulty that many of us in this room are even called to right now. Am I willing to lay down my life to the point where I give up my own autonomy? Because Paul did this not just for Jesus. Who was he suffering for? Look at verse 13. I am suffering for you, the church. He says in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of who? The elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Church, I want to ask you today, I know that many of you in here are willing to endure anything on behalf of Jesus. I do not doubt that if someone came in here with a gun and said, anyone who is a Christian, stand tall so I can shoot you, many of you would stand up and say, I'll take the bullet. I'll die for Jesus. But how many of you in here are willing to endure anything for the sake of your brother and sister to your left and your right? For the sake of the elect. If your answer is not everything, because remember, Paul didn't know all of the people he was suffering for. So if you think, oh, they got to be my best friend, you're missing the point. If your answer is not, I will lay down everything, I would call you to take a second look at Paul's words. If we have even an inkling of an attitude that is, I would lay down my life for that person there, but not that person over there. Or I would submit to that leader there, but not that leader over there then I would suggest to you we have a ways to go. This is what Jesus meant when he called us to the greatest love, to lay down our lives for our friends. Folks, if you look around you today and, and you say, I don't think I would lay down my life for that person over there, I want to ask you to go to that person, to meet them, to hear their story, and then ask yourself, why do I believe that this saint is not worthy of my life when Jesus himself was willing to lay down his life for them. And Paul was willing to lay down his. Another quote from John Stott. I know I've quoted him three weeks in a row. I'm sorry, he's just that amazing. He says, Now suffering and glory are constantly coupled in the New Testament. Jesus said that he would enter his glory through suffering and that his followers would have to tread the same path. Here, however, Paul writes something different, namely that his sufferings will bring them, his Gentile readers, glory. He is suffering in prison on their behalf as their champions, standing firm for their inclusion in God's new society. So convinced is he of the divine origin of his vision that he is prepared to pay any price to see it become a reality. That is the measure of Paul's concern for the church. Paul finishes here with this statement of not losing heart based on that suffering. To not lose heart comes from the Greek words meaning to give in to evil. Paul was saying, don't give in to evil because you see my suffering. 
If we have wrong theology, we will find ourselves giving into the world and the lies around us because the Messiah we've come up with in our heads, he's not really filling the bill. He's not meeting the expectations of what we think he should be. Remember that first Palm Sunday that Esther read about? What were they doing? They were laying down palm fronds, calling that Messiah. He's our king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And where were they three days later? Bought back into the world, bought back into the system and the kingdom of darkness. Because Jesus was not the military leader they were thinking he was supposed to be. So many of us have created this false expectation of who the Messiah should be, and often it's based upon he is all for my kingdom, my job, my life, my house. But guys, recognize that Christianity is in the context of a war. This worldly system is formed off of the desires and rules of the kingdom of darkness and the prince of the power of the air. And when we stepped into sin in our own lives, we were not creating a new rebellion. We were simply stepping into the kingdom of darkness, adding to the rebellion that existed since the angels rebelled against God in the heavens. And we must understand this context because when we're suffering, it's because we are fighting against that, whether outside of us or within our own lives. And as Christ followers, our lives will act in complete opposition to the worldly kingdom of selfishness, greed, debauchery, violence. And this is why Paul calls us to boldness. Because to stand firm against that kind of activity, against that kind of kingdom, we must be bold knowing on whose behalf we are fighting. We have boldness in our position in Christ the King. We have boldness to enter his throne room as well. But we must also have boldness when he sends us back out to follow his commission in the world to bring his justice and his glory to the people around us and his transformation in our own life, even if it means suffering on his behalf. And so together, we're moving towards that eventual day of glory when Christ will fully rule and reign as king. So let us not be like his followers on that first Palm Sunday, crying out to him as king, but then shrinking back when he doesn't measure up to our expectations, when suffering comes. This Palm Sunday, I want to give you some basic application. First, we have to have confidence in our position in Christ. If you've confessed Christ as king and live according to that truth, then you can be assured you are secure in Christ. I want you to have confidence in that he wants to hear you and be with you. If you have sinned to confess, today is the day to confess it. Be bold to enter his throne room of grace and lay down your life in asking for his forgiveness. Be bold in prayer on behalf of your brothers and sisters. Be bold in praising him and thanking him and calling out to him. And lastly, be bold in living a life ready to suffer anything for the sake of the king and the sake of of his people. Be bold in your heart, in your mind, in your action, in your obedience, in your repentance. Be bold in bringing your life into allegiance to Jesus even if you are met with difficulty. Be bold in exalting your king by loving one another even when it is difficult. And this morning, Let's begin to prepare our hearts for this Good Friday where we will gather and recognize that just as Christ laid down his life for ours, he calls us 
to lay down ours for him and for one another, regardless of what suffering comes. Dear church, I want us to be known as the bold church. What does that mean for you individually? What do you need to lay down? What do you need to allow yourself to be convicted by so that we together can be known as the bold body of Christ?